Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our true and living God, it seems a strange thing in our world uh, to pause and say that we are now hearing from you, the creator of heaven and earth. But we pray in your mercy that would be the case. And we would uh, come to know uh, the Lord Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today and forever. Come to know him from his word and come to trust him as he deserves. Help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and receive it with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, does that verse bring to your mind all that is wrong with Christianity, or at least with brands of Christianity like ours, that think that God is now speaking to us in the Bible? Does it? Perhaps you're wondering what I'm talking about. You can't see anything wrong with it, anything wrong with being asked to imitate the faith of first century leaders, first century people. Well, then let me ask you this question. How can imitating the faith, that is, the worldview, the beliefs and allegiances of first century people be in any way something that 21st century people can be expected to do? let alone thought to be useful. Because our world has changed, hasn't it? Greatly and irreversibly, almost to the point that there's now a discontinuity between the past and the present. Well, at least that's what many believe. And change, the changes that have happened are obvious, aren't they? Let me give you a couple of examples. First, a simple one, change in life expectancy. And that's been great just really from the beginning of the last century. You see, if you've been born in the decade 1881 to 1890 in Australia, your life expectancy as a boy was 47.2 years and as a girl, 50.8. And that wasn't all that different from the life expectancy of those who made it out of childhood in the ancient world. 50% oh, of kids did die before they were 10, but if you got past 10 you could expect to live into your 40s, basically. But if you've been born in 2014 to 2016, well, your life expectancy would have been 80.4 and 84.6 years, respectively. And that's a big change. People don't grow up, in a sense, for much of their life expecting to die, aware of death. In fact, people feel cheated if they don't enjoy now a lengthy retirement, almost unheard of. Oh, there have been massive changes in what we can and do know. We've sequenced the genome and are exploring planets. There's an almost exponential growth in info and biotechnology. And we have this capacity now to amass enormous amounts of data and write predictive algorithms on the basis of that data, things that predict your behaviour. And the impact of these changes isn't confined to labs and universities, is it? I mean, it's part of our daily lives. I used to own a street directory and a telephone directory. 
Now I've got an iPhone in my pocket. You used to just have to sit there, but now if it gets boring, well, you can look up the passage in 20 different versions on your iPhone. I'm keeping an eye on you. Okay. Right. Now, and with all this kind of change, there's been changes in thought in what's taken for granted in a thinking person's universe. Let me name just a few. For a start, there is the absence or the non-necessity of God in living daily life. Oh, and there are new ways of thinking about identity which are now unconstrained by biology or history. Identity is now dependent on our own self-definition. There's an expectation of self-directed development individually and as a race as we tinker with fetal DNA or enhance our capacities with mind-machine interfaces. And we've got this commitment to human autonomy with authority being decisively located in the individual self in the present and we have this expectation of constant change, constant improvement. In fact, one popular philosopher, Yuval Hariri, even uses the term homo deus, deus, man-god, of what 21st century humanity will aspire to as it pursues happiness and, yes, immortality, a humanity occupying the place of God in the universe. It's as if we live in a different universe to the first century, where people died young where the trajectory of their lives was shaped by tradition and constrained completely by biology, where they lived conscious of the involvement of the gods in everyday life, and where they saw the passing of the years not in terms of progress but in declension, and they admired and valued what did not change. When you see the difference, you think, surely it's impossible to believe about ourselves and our world what any ancient person believed. And if you don't think it's impossible, many do. So how can we expect 21st century people to embrace the faith, that is, the worldview, the beliefs about the world and how we should live in it, of first century people? I mean, we read a verse like verse 7 and we think, oh, remember, yes, yes, history can inform us. Consider the outcome of their life. Oh, yes, we need inspiring examples. But imitate the faith of those first century leaders. Have the same content to what we believe as they do and believe in the same way, have faith with the same character as them. That's absurd. That kind of expectation that we can share the faith of first century people just shows how out of touch evangelical Christians are in looking to this ancient book for present-day allegiances and guidance. That's what many think. Are the critics right? Is it unreasonable to call on 21st century people, as God does here, to call on 21st century people to imitate the faith of those first century people? Well, this morning... By looking at verses 7 to 9 of Hebrews 13, I hope by the end you'll see it's not only reasonable but right and good to call on 21st century people to imitate the faith of those first century leaders, to have faith with the same content and character and not only to call upon people to have that faith but to call upon Christians to preserve that faith. 
So let's unpack these verses. So firstly, what is he asking of his first readers in verse 7? Why is he asking this of them, verse 8? And does the answer he gives that Jesus is the same give us today good grounds for thinking it is right and good to obey this command ourselves and to call others to do so? And then verse 9. Does he give us good reason to be active in preserving this faith? So what's he asking of the first readers? What's being called for? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Now leaders is a general term for those who've been entrusted with responsibility in the congregation. And as we heard in our reading, uh, verse 17, the congregation the author is addressing does have currently active leaders in the congregation. Uh, but the leaders he's calling them to remember in verse 7 seem to be another group. He's characterised them as those who spoke to you the word of God. And he speaks of their lives as having an outcome, which suggests that we can now consider not just their achievements, but we can look at the sum total of their life as if they've already finished the race. So we think these leaders are the missionary preachers who'd been there at the foundation of the congregation, brought it into being by their preaching. And in chapter 2 we've been told that the gospel was brought to us, the writer including himself with his first hearers, by those who had received it, heard it from the Lord Jesus himself. So these leaders were the first ear witnesses, the apostles, people commissioned by Jesus to bring the gospel to the nations and whose testimony was then confirmed by God by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Spirit. And in calling them to remember these leaders, he's not calling them just to recollect their message, though that's important, but also to consider the outcome of their way of life, the fruit of their persevering faithfulness to Jesus, and then imitate their faith. So he's saying to the first hearers and to us that, their faith, the faith of those leaders, is to be our faith. Our faith is to be like theirs, so it should have the same content. We should believe what they believed. And it should have the same character as theirs, expressed in their life of believing, a life which had its origin in their faith, in what they believed. So he says, remember your leaders, those first preachers of the gospel to you, their message, their example and their faith. Now why does he call on them to do this? For like us, the first readers of Hebrews had different lives to those first preachers. Why is he asking this of them? Verse 8, it's because the one preached, the one followed, the one trusted by them, Jesus, is still the same, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. So he's saying Jesus Christ is the same in the yesterday of those first hearers, that is in the preaching of those first leaders there to remember. Oh, and he is the same in the today of those first hearers, in the writing and the teaching of the author of Hebrews. And he says he is the same tomorrow. He's forever. He is always the same. And that forever is why you should share the faith of those first preachers of the gospel, those leaders who spoke the word of God, and why you should call on others 
to share this faith in Jesus. For faith takes its content and its character from the one in whom we believe, the object of our faith. And if Jesus is the same, and if our faith is to be in Jesus, then we will believe the same things about Jesus as those first leaders believed and proclaimed. And our believing, our life of faith, will have the same shape as the lives of those first leaders. If Jesus is the same, well, their faith is the faith we and all Christians must imitate. But to have faith in Jesus, we have to know who Jesus is. So who is this Jesus of their yesterday, the Jesus of the preaching of the apostles? Who is this Jesus of their today, the Jesus of the teaching of Hebrews? Now let me say, they're questions with big answers, so I'm going to summarise, and I'm happy to give you answers, uh, references afterwards. But in answering this question, who is Jesus, we'll also see why it's right and good that 21st century people are called upon to have faith in Jesus, as we see both his singularity, the uniqueness of his claims in his life, and as we see his goodness. Now, read the Gospels and you'll get the testimony of those first witnesses. And, and I hope if, if talk of Jesus is unfamiliar to you, you will read the Gospels, those biographies of the life of Jesus, and we'd be happy to talk to you about that and read them with you. But you read the Gospels and yes, you'll see that Jesus is a real man, a real birthplace, growing up in a real family, but you will also see that he taught that he was the Son of God sent by the Father God to do the Father's will in rescuing his people. Oh, you'll see that he's someone who lived and taught the truth, who conducted a public ministry over three and a bit years, and in that ministry showed himself to be kind and good by doing good. Someone who brought wholeness and restoration to wounded and excluded people, healing lepers with a touch, giving sight to the blind, confronting the chaos of fragmented lives. And someone who, though a person who was busy and people all wanted to see an important person, actually, as you heard, welcomed children, had time for them and their parents. Oh, somebody who you heard in the John 13 reading was actually humble and loved. Someone who served followers who are more concerned with their comfort and status than the welfare of their friends. Yet Jesus washed their feet. Oh yes, read on, and you see he died the shameful death, the public death of a criminal crucifixion at the hands of both his own people and the Roman invaders, but who said that that death was the purpose of his coming, not an accident, that his death was the ransom to bring people freedom. And the eyewitnesses go on to say that Jesus is someone who'd been raised from death in the body in which he died, raised to never die again, and exalted to a reign that embraces all creation. So they declare him to be Lord, the one with all authority, authority to judge and forgive, authority to give the new life of God's spirit. Oh, and somebody who will one day be revealed as Lord to all, at his return. And in all this, he was seen to be the one who was the fulfiller of the plan and purpose of the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. 
And although the language is different, this is the same Jesus the author of Hebrews has just been presenting at length to his hearers and readers, although he presents these truths in the language of the Old Testament. Let me, in a sense, run the Hebrews highlights real. Okay, and, and if there are lots of references coming up. If you can't read them all, don't be flustered. They're really up there just to show you that I'm not making it up, okay, to reassure you, right? But uh, so, so first of all, Hebrews starts off telling us that Jesus is actually the Son and that he's the Son who makes God known, that God has spoken to us in his Son, who is the radiance, verse 3, of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, that looking at Jesus, we can see God. So Jesus is the someone who brings us to know God. And Jesus, Hebrews has told us, is the reigning king to whom all things will be subjected, who fulfills Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Oh, yes, and Jesus is a real man, verse 14, who shared our flesh and blood and did this so that he could die to break the power of death over us. And sharing our flesh and blood, well, he's become somebody who knows our life, who's lived the life of faith before us, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, and is also somebody who, because he knows what it is to be one of us, can sympathise with us and help us. Oh, and Hebrews is taught repeatedly that Jesus' death is God's will to save, whose death in obedience in the language of Hebrews is that perfect sacrifice that, again, sanctifies us, that is, washes us clean, makes us fit for the presence of the living God and perfects us does all that is needed to bring us to live with God in the new heaven and earth forever. And that death, we've been told, includes us in this new covenant, this relationship with God where we've been made God's people and we can live with God forever because he forgives our sins and gives us new hearts. Jesus is the one who is exalted because of that death and ever lives in God's presence. And because of that, he can save to the uttermost. He can rescue completely and forever those who will trust him, who will draw near to God through him. He is the one who is always able to save, crucified, risen, reigning, always able to help, superior to all, and yes, the one we will one day meet because he will appear a second time. And in Hebrews, as we've gone through it, we have seen what it is to have faith in Jesus, the faith that takes its character from who Jesus is and what he has done. To have faith in Jesus is to be, chapter 3, somebody who keeps listening to Jesus' word. Oh, it's to live the life of faith together encouraging one another to have faith in Jesus is to maintain our confidence in him to the end. Our confidence that he is the one to whom we can always draw near for help, whatever the circumstances of our life. Our confidence that he will do what he has promised us. Faith assures us of the fulfilment of his promise. And because faith gives us confidence, faith is seen in running with perseverance the race of faith to the end, keeping our eyes on Jesus. And in running that race, 
trusting in the Father's love for us as his children always, knowing he is treating us even in hard things as his sons. Oh, to have faith is to live with hope, live as strangers here because we know we're journeying to the heavenly city and being willing to suffer, to come to that destination through trusting Jesus. To have faith is to be exclusively loyal to Jesus, never shifting from our confidence in him. And it is to be thankful, thankful for receiving through what Jesus has done for us the kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's actually when we know who Jesus is and what it is to have faith in him that we see that it's right to ourselves imitate the faith of those first preachers of the gospel and to call others, even 21st century people, to share that same faith. For Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, is unique and he is good. You see, the Jesus of the apostolic preaching, the Jesus of Hebrews, he's not a virtual or made-up saviour, not a construct of human thought and so entrapped in the age which conceived him like so many philosophies. No, Jesus, yes, a real man in a real place and time with a real death made unique and extraordinary claims to be the eternal son of God whose death would save and he submitted those claims to being tested and established in hard reality. Death, the death of our bodies, is the real and ultimate discontinuity in the life of every person in every age. Some people want to think, you know, reality is that they think it to be, that it's what their words portray it to be. Now, they can fool themselves and can fool others for a time, but there's always a limit on the shaping of our world with their words. And that limit is death. Their hopes and dreams and threats perish with them because there's no coming back into the life of this world for any human, first or 21st century, when they die. Life from the dead is a God-only possibility. Yet Jesus said he would be killed and rise again, that death was no barrier to him and the power of his word. He subjected himself to this ultimate test and he was vindicated, not as a thought or the projection of a wish or the visions of the grieving, but in a body, the body in which he died, to be seen, touched, spoken and eaten with by those who knew him and had seen him die. Now in the first or the 21st century, this is proof of truthfulness. And it is a singularity, a unique event that demands engagement. Oh, and being the Jesus of the apostolic preacher, uh, of the apostolic gospel, Jesus is actually the good saviour 21st century people need. You see, there are continuities as well as discontinuities between our forebears in the first century and ourselves. Some of those continuities are recognised. Others are not. So, for example, we, 21st century people, we still long to know who we are, why we're here, whether there's something we should do with this one life we have. That is, we long for identity and meaning and purpose, and we long for relationships of love and integrity that last, to know lasting peace and joy, 
not just anxiety punctuated with fleeting escapist experiences. And there are other continuities we may not acknowledge but are real because God doesn't disappear because we wish him to, stop being God because we want to stop thinking about him. So, 21st century people, we share in the human problem of sin, of rebelling against our creator and the disorder that love of self instead of love of God brings to lives and societies. And that means we also share in death, not as a biological necessity, but as a sentence. And we will share in judgment. Now, the Jesus of the gospel, the same Jesus of the apostolic preaching, He saves, he brings wholeness to us. See, believing the truth about Jesus brings us to know ourselves as creatures made to know and love the creator God, to know ourselves as those who have wandered away and are now welcome home, whose lives are to be given to doing good, who are given by believing in Jesus identity and purpose and meaning and sure relationship where we know we are loved by a God whose Son was given in love to die for us and who, in being rescued by Jesus, are being fitted for lasting joy when every tear will be wiped away. Believing in this Jesus of the apostles' preaching, having the same faith as those first speakers of the word of God means that where we are conscious of guilt and fear of judgment, we can actually know ourselves forgiven. Where we know ourselves enslaved to destructive habits, we can be given a new life empowered by the Spirit of God. We're overwhelmed with the transience of life and the grief of constant loss. We can have a hope of eternal life. We're longing for truth and righteousness. We can know ourselves fitted for the presence of the just and always true God. Where we are alone, we can be brought into the family of God now and promised a place amongst God's people in the city of God forever. And the living, exalted Jesus does for those who trust him all this. Does this for all who have faith in him as he comes to them in that gospel word, the word of God preached by those first witnesses. And he is the only one who can do this, the only son, the only risen Lord. And Jesus is the one who can always do this, who can do it for all time and for all people because he is always the same in might and character and faithfulness to his promise for his is the sameness of victory. You see, there are different ways of being the same over time, aren't there? I mean, I can stub my toe on the same rock yesterday, today and forever and it won't change because it's dead. Jesus is the same because of life, a life which death no longer has any hold over. Jesus is the same because of completed accomplishment. He has won on the cross, saved his people and defeated all who opposed him by his death. He's the winner. It's losers who have to adjust to circumstances. But no one can make Jesus change his character. No one has a hold over him. He doesn't have to accommodate to any change for any, always the same. And in winning, he actually has achieved his goal. 
being exalted as Lord and Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father with authority to forgive and judge all. Jesus is the same, never changing because of his triumphant life. Same, always able to do what he has promised because of his triumphant life. So he can always keep that promise, even in the 21st century, because he always lives. That promise of forgiveness and eternal life, of adoption and the gift of the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. That is why it's right for you to imitate the faith of those first followers, sharing the same word, confessing Jesus as Lord, following their example, obeying and thinking it worth all, even suffering to share in his heavenly kingdom and holding fast to Jesus with thankfulness and joy. And because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever, it's right to call others, others, to have the same kind of faith as those who first proclaimed the message of Jesus, to believe about Jesus what they'd been brought to believe about him by witnessing his life, death and resurrection, to live the same kind of life of faithful following of Jesus by listening to him and doing his word. Oh yes, and it's because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever that it's right for us to hold fast to the Jesus we meet in the preaching and teaching of the eyewitnesses. I was just going to say, I felt like calling the RACV then for a battery change. Right, who knows? Good. Right, it is right to always hold fast to the preaching and teaching of the eyewitnesses preserving the word of God, the word of truth, from error. Verse 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Now verse 9 is a kind of a bridge verse. It moves us from remembering and imitating the faith of those first preachers to the author's next point in verses 10 to 15. But it starts with a general warning. Because Jesus is the same, there is only one gospel for all time. So we mustn't be swept off course by the currents of false teaching, what he calls here diverse teachings. And false teaching will always be many and varied, won't it? Because you can have one right answer and an infinity of wrong ones, can't you? Two plus two has one right answer and an infinity of wrong ones. Who is God's son sent into the world to save has one right answer, Jesus, and an infinity of wrong ones. He calls them diverse teachings and strange teachings. That's not because they're unknown, because our author knows the uselessness of the specific errors he will be referring to. No, they're strange because they are foreign, alien to the gospel of Jesus. And he says, don't get carried away with them because these diverse and strange teachings will do you no good. The heart, the willing, thinking centre of our lives, the source of our character and conduct, needs grace, the gift of Jesus in the gospel. And thankfulness for that gift needs grace to be strong and healthy, to be established and settled. Not teaching which is useless, which he 
describes here as foods which did not benefit those who walk in them. Now, why he chose the metaphor of food for this false teaching, we'll look at next week as he reminds his first hearers that they're done with the ritual practices of Judaism. But our author's point's clear, isn't it? If only Jesus saves, and Jesus is always the same, always the Jesus we learn of in the preaching of the apostles and the teaching of the New Testament, well, then we must hold to that teaching. We mustn't let ourselves be led away, carried away by the error of those who want to deny Jesus or add or subtract from that testimony. Now, how can we stay in the right path? Well, it's actually by imitating the faith of those first believers, by knowing the truth, the word of God preached by those who knew Jesus, by understanding the truth as it's expounded to us in the New Testament, by practising the truth, living the life of faith in Jesus. That's how we can stay on the right path. And we, especially amongst ourselves, ought to be clear about the destructiveness of error so that we have nothing to do with it. This is what uh, John says. He says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, and, uh, man, he didn't even live through the 19th and 20th century, right? Hundreds, thousands. So he says, watch yourself. And then verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Don't dabble with falsehood. Don't be fashionably, fashionably open to new teachings that depart from the gospel. He's saying, shut the door on those false teachings. Don't receive them into your home. And of course, sometimes you may be well advised to do that literally. When they knock on your door, the Jehovah's Witnesses, denying that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, shut the door. Oh, when there's a new group, they knocked on Clarissa's door, the Elohim Academy. And they want to tell you that just as there's a kind of a maleness to God, there's a femaleness to God, femaleness to God, and they're going to tell you about the female God, right? Well, that's just bytheism and paganism. And if you believe that, you'll go to hell, okay? Just letting you know that. You ought to shut the door, okay? And you ought to be alert. You have to test all things. You know, that's what Paul tells us to do. We have to test teaching against the apostolic teaching. But more than that, we've got to test the lies of those who teach or claim prophetic inspiration against the teaching of Jesus. See there, verse 20, thus you will recognise them by their fruits. This is why it is so wise to be part of a local fellowship. Because what can you do in a local fellowship? You can see and test the lies of those who teach the word of God to you, whether they actually believe what they say and live by it. Can you do that with an internet preacher? No, not really. And everybody can look good on the internet. At local meetings, preaching mightn't be flash, right? You might actually see, you know, what kind of week the preacher had last week. You might have been part of that week, right? right? Won't be. But you can know, you can test their life. 
and so test their doctrine. In fact, staying on the truth, testing, knowing, growing in the truth is all made easier by staying in fellowship, meeting together, receiving each other's instruction, encouragement and correction. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teaching. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the word that God has given us. That's right. He speaks this word directly to us. So remember those apostolic preachers. Consider their life. Consider the word of God they brought to you and imitate their faith, its content and character by putting your faith in the same Jesus they preached, followed and trusted themselves <coughs> and work at keeping yourself in that truth. And you should do that because our Lord Jesus is always the same. And that is wonderful. That's right. He is always kind and patient. He is always life-giving. He is always able to hear and help all who cry out to him. He always loves his people. And he is always able to save, to rescue us, and to save completely. And so he is always the Lord who deserves your faith in all things. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that we would know the teaching and the preaching of those who knew our Lord Jesus. And we pray that we would actually know Jesus in that preaching. Know the Lord Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today and forever, the same for us as he is in the Gospels, as he is in the New Testament, patient and kind, welcoming children, humble, loving, yet exalted over all with all authority to forgive and to judge. And we pray, gracious God, that knowing him, we would trust him. We would put our faith in him for today and tomorrow and forever, knowing that he will always be faithful. Amen.